You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom Bracha, I'm Aprom Kivalevich, and this is Standing in Two Worlds, and I'm here with Dr. Sam Juni, who is joining us from Yerushalayim. And this is, of course, if you're listening to this soon, this is, of course, the uh, the one of the days of the Aseris Yimei the 10 days between Rosh Hashanah, the, the first day of the year, which we have talked about last week as the day of judgment for life and death. And then the day of atonement, the great day of, that we call Yom HaKippurim or Yom Kippur, which is coming up this Sunday night. And Dr. Juni, as most of our listeners know, uh, besides the fasting that everyone is very familiar with, that we fast on Yom Kippur, but it's a day that's spent in prayer. Um, but more than just prayer of praying to God, it's also supposed to be a day of tshuva, of repentance that we spoke about, and to try to obtain atonement. But a very important part of that repentance, in fact, according to the Rambam, maybe even the key element of that repentance that makes it something significant, and on Yom Kippur specifically, is confession, you know, is vidui. Now, if we have some of our Catholic friends that might be listening, they, they're very familiar with confession, which is done quite frequently. In fact, uh, those that have been saying what we call slichot, the penitential prayers, uh, we've been confessing for quite a bit. Our Sephardi friends have been confessing for, for over a month. But on Yom Kippur, the idea of confession becomes quite real. The idea of, of confessing and owning up and speaking in, in, with a real heart and meaning it, reflection about what you've done, what you've done wrong this year, and looking into yourself and and really expressing. Now, the mahzorim that have been printed for hundreds and hundreds of years uh, have developed a text, the, the the text that we have for someone who comes into the synagogue, comes into the shul on Yom Kippur, to be able to stand and be able to say the things that hopefully will stir their heart. And we know that the standard uh, texts uh, in the Machser are based on the poetry of the Middle Ages that were inspiring for them because of the Aleph Bez, because of the, the, uh, the, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, starting from A to Z, from Aleph to Tuf, and each one indicating some sort of negative thing that you've done. Again, for those that remember, of course, the Ashamnu, Bagadnu, that's Aleph Bez, Gazalnu, that we've devastated ourselves, we have been, we've betrayed you, we have been betrayers, Gazalnu, we've been thieves, um, and, and so on, till the final letter. Um, this is followed usually uh, in the Machzorim by an Aleph Bez acrostic known to most people as the Alchets, where uh, the, uh, the, once again, the letters of the Aleph Bez and the standard Ashkenazi Machzor, I, I can't speak for the Sephardi Machzor right now, I don't have one in front of me, but the standard Aleph, Ashkenazi Machzor has two examples of the Aleph, two examples of the Bez. Um, let me give you an example in the Gimel, just for our listeners to understand. A person has sinned goli v'setel, openly and in secret. And then the next gimel is gilui arayot, that he's sinned with illicit sexual relationships. 
Okay, so that's what the two gimels are, and then similarly with the dalids, etc. So, Doctor Juni, there's there's other things I want to discuss here, but I want to get you involved right away. Do you see it as as a positive uh, that a person should um, begin this type of reflection and read these things and start sort of imagining or connecting what he's reading to what he's done and to spend that time uh, during that the, the private and public prayer sort of castigating himself and going through this list of, of, of things that they've done wrong. Um, do you see that as something that, that from your perspective that could lead to, you know, uh, an altering of that person? Is it something that, that can devolve into like self-pity and, 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 and the lack of growth? Uh, maybe even, you know, turn the person off, specifically if he's reading from this prepared text. So what are your feelings here about this? Okay. Okay. Hello again. I'm glad to be here. And um, I have a lot to say about confession, especially since many people treat um, mental health professionals as father confessors. They feel they come in there and somehow by unburdening themselves, they um, go through some kind of process of healing. Um, So let me just give you reactions to some of the points you mentioned and then we can um, run with it if you wish. Okay, so first of all, I'm going to give you the perspective of somebody who is a um, citizen of Western culture. So we're going to limit it to that. And I don't necessarily mean to limit myself at all to uh, people who are uh, observant, because uh, many um, Jewish folks who are not observant do participate in our holiday services and go through a lot of the prayers. And I also think that much of what we're saying pertains a lot to um, um, non-Jewish um, religious people who believe in confession. Okay, so let's do the following. From a Western perspective, ritualized um, prayer from a prescripted prayer book is artificial. They don't quite know what to do with it. Hymnals are not bad at all because hymns are seen as a form of poetry, um, as a form of um, using aesthetics to relate to certain concepts, and that's fine because they're inspiring. It's almost like a non-religious people would use pre-scripted popular songs to express certain kinds of feelings or to experience certain feelings. So that doesn't seem to be something that that people find jaded. But when you go through um, a confession that's pre-scripted, there's an artificial feel to it, to many of us. And uh, the associations I come up with, I have several, and they're not very positive in terms of the... uh, the spirit that we're trying to get into in the days of repentance are, first of all, um, the, the acrostics and the, the um, le- putting, arranging things by letters that almost sounds a little bit uh, like you're engaged in some kind of um, third grade play where you arrange things by, uh, by alphabet. It sounds uh, odd. Also, um, especially when you speak about the basic asham, the one, the basic al-chait, which is not elaborated uh, with the point saying that almost having a preamble, we're listing the common pitfalls of normal human beings and they may or may not relate to you. I think of it more as a 
a restaurant menu where if you go in and, and you're told, okay, you must have some of everything, or when you go to a smorgasbord, you must taste some of everything, it will not be an experience that you find consistent with, with your way of thinking. If they tell you these are choices, you may like some of them. Of course, we don't expect you to order all of them. You can kind of see whether you can relate to it. And somehow, maybe you'll get a little poo-poo sampler. That's better. So, But when you look at a, a, the typical Ashambles and al without elaboration, many of us feel this is not relevant to me. And here I am saying it. So what is this all about? And uh, if you are like uh, fasting for a while already and getting irritated, you almost feel like you're in the POW camp where you're forced to recant for sins um, that you did not really relate to. And then this whole procedure can become artificial. Um, Let me just talk about confession as a process of introspection. Most of us would say that um, you think of something you feel something, and then you express it verbally. That's the normal way of understanding what we as human beings are like in contrast to machines. Um, Social scientists, there was a fellow called Leon Festinger in the 1950s at New School who discovered a real remarkable um, facet of human behavior, which has been used a lot in the... um, Facebook, Google industry in terms of influencing people into certain beliefs. And the theory is called cognitive dissonance. Let me just take a minute to explain it. The notion of cognitive dissonance is that we are not so much as human beings functioning with the notion that we have certain beliefs and certain convictions and that behavior follows usually consistent with those beliefs and convictions, and that people who believe one thing and do something else feel discomfort, which Festinger liked to call cognitive dissonance, which means that your thinking and your feelings are not consistent with what you do. And a major principle in human um, functioning is that we try to minimize dissonance and we try to get ourselves to the point where we do what we believe or the way Festinger liked to phrase it, just as easily believe in what we do. Then we are consistent, okay? And in fact, that's a methodology that's been used by many of um, um, influence um, making by some rouge regimes where they try to get you to believe something by saying something. So typically POWs are meant to say things and do things whether they believe it or not. And after a while, you actually can turn some POWs to feel ideologically opposed to their own original belief system simply because they've said and done it so much. Okay, let me stop with the lecture there. Um, It's clear that if we do things, we start believing them. Okay, that's a major tenet of how many of us raise our children, right? We can't always give them our philosophical rationales for what makes sense from an adult perspective. We just essentially train them, so to speak, to do various things, whether of a moral character, of a pro-social character, a religious character, whatever it is that we raise our family members or children to be. And then most of the time, the, the kids who become adults come away with belief systems and value systems which are consistent with the kind of behaviors they've done. So let's jump ahead and apply this to the al and confessions. Um, people who try to be serious on the, holy, on the high holidays and they do confessions, 
will find themselves relating to the content simply because they are practicing the ritual of saying it. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It only becomes a bad thing or a dissonant thing when people say, this makes no sense to me. But other than that, we're fine. I have to throw something that's quite relevant and that many of the um, confessional um, liturgy, especially some, not the basic al but those beyond there, are phrased towards the male um, um, participant in prayer services. Some of them are very gender-based and jarring, I would say, to women when they find, they say, oh, I'm saying this prayer, and all of a sudden they're talking about issues that are totally male and not female-related, and they find almost like they've walked into the wrong um, uh, house of worship. What am I doing here? Why am I saying all this? That's just parenthetical. Okay, yeah. Well, let, okay. me just, let me just respond to that parenthesis before we get Please. to the, yes. the other thing. Sure. When we talk about um, the extra layers of liturgy, as you say, the deeper layers, and I want to tell our listeners about them because I want to mention two specifically, which I think are very popular. Uh, the Tfilat Zakba, that um, most people know it from the book from uh, the Chayodim, from, uh, from Danzig, who was a Rav, originally a businessman, but then eventually a Rav in Vilna, always a great Talmud Falcham who put together at the end of his book, uh, Chaye Adam, The Life of Man, uh, what he considered uh, a, a proper text of what to be said as Yom Kippur is beginning, as the day of Yom Kippur starts. We know it as the Kol Nidre ceremony, but for many people, as, as I've uh, we talked about it for a minute before we went on, before we started recording, for many people, that moment of being able to say the Tzilat Zaka from the Machsar, and we're going to, it's like such an incredibly strong moment uh, because of those, because of the phrases that are used there. And you're correct. Those phrases were written, put together by a man and were probably meant for the men who were able to get to show and weren't stuck at home uh, with the children uh, at night. Uh, and, and, and clearly this reflects a lot of our, our, our tefillos. Uh, similarly, you know, so, so you're correct. There is a, there's definitely a prejudice, but the prejudice isn't a misogynistic prejudice. It's because there, at the era that these prayers were developed and eventually printed, it was minuscule, the amount of women that would have the time or the energy or even the knowledge to be able to incorporate them. So that's part of the reason I think why, as you say, it's, it's definitely very male-centered. I think what we have today, you're right, is the threat of rediscovering these uh, tefillot for the modern age and for women who are going to show and finding this out, you're right, it might cause them, hey, what's, you know, none of this speaks to them. And maybe what could be done is a little bit of editing uh, as far as that goes. But again, I interrupted just to explain uh, what you were saying. You were talking about what you felt was uh, the benefits of, 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 of the confession in a big way. And, and if you could, as you continue... Tell me why, if you are going to zero in on some of these actions, but not pierce what's behind it. For example, if one of the actions is stealing, right? That I, I steal, I take stuff when I shouldn't. I go to work and I, I, I take the paper clips and, or whatever it is, you know, that I shouldn't be taking. And, and then I, I, whenever I see something, I, okay, gazalti or ganavti. But what's behind it? Maybe you, by, by mentioning the act, you haven't at all dealt with what's really behind it. 
the person doesn't steal because he needs these things uh, to use. There's something wrong with him that maybe he hasn't uh, he hasn't really dealt with. He hasn't really faced up to. And that could be true about many of these things, even if it's talking about, you know, as uh, getting involved in illicit sensual or sexual activity. Why do you find this need to go outside of your home uh, to get your jollies? What is going on? What's really happening deeper within you? So I, I'm not sure, because and I'm actually very surprised that you think mentioning those details might be ignoring the big picture of why he steals and why he feels he has to get sexual gratification other than from his wife in the normal way. So, uh, <laughs> so I hope you'll, you'll explain that to me too. Okay, I can react. I cannot explain, but I would react. And I would say that you're betraying here a perspective that makes a lot of sense from our zeitgeist, from our time and place. And that is that we... As, um, shall we say, um, people who consider ourselves more acculturated um, are careful in terms of acts almost as much as probably people in many generations ago were careful about them, that we don't want to do something to hurt someone or to, to violate someone's property. But essentially, we see those acts as indicative of something about us. And that, let's say, let's think about a child. When you find out that a child threw a spitball at someone or spoke disrespectfully to your teacher. Of course, you want to make sure it doesn't happen again, but your concern is not what happened at that particular time. Let him repent for that time. Your concern is that there's something going on there that betrays a lack of confidence or some kind of lack of appreciation of other people or a basic disrespect of others. That's what we're concerned about. It's unfortunate that the... um, texts of confession that we use are almost totally act-related, okay? Like I'm thinking, you know, of um, the notion, I mean, let's say found in much more Christian literature, that if you sin in your heart, you've basically sinned. And whether you've had an opportunity to actually carry out what it is you intended, that says something about you and that has besmirched your soul and you need to cleanse your soul. And that's in the Jewish literature as well. But in the, conf- the printed confessionals, the main stress is, I did that, I did this, I did that. So um, from a perspective of personality, if you are the type of person that would do X or Y, which is antisocial or harmful to others, there's something wrong with you. And I, we spoke about that in the past. I would diagnostically give a psychiatric label to someone who is of the type who would do this, whether he did it or not. And if you did something by mistake, most of us have a hard time relating to that. Yet in the confessionals, mistakes are all over the place. I mean, in the Torah, mistakes are seen as something that's indicative of a weakness or a disposition on your part. Many of us cannot relate to that. So I find it, shall we say, dissonant from a modern perspective to be talking about acts and acts and acts that you did. Yes, they were harmful. There's no question, especially interpersonal acts or acts against God. You've done some damage either to your physical world or to your spiritual world, which mandates correction of some sort. But more than that, it shows that there's something with you. So I feel just as bad personally if I intended to do something that was really treacherous or harmful to a friend 
when I did it or when I didn't do it. I feel, oh, hey, Sam, there's something very bad about you that's got to be fixing. And I would much, and again, there are some of the elaborations in Tvilat Zaka, et cetera, and some other English texts that some of us use that pertain to the character, what kind of people we are. But most of them are act-related, and I find that somewhere close to irrelevance with the way that many of us think. So you would say that what might be called for is some sort of altering of this text. Uh, again, we want to emerge from Yom Kippur. We want to actually emerge as, as, again, we don't want to say the change, because I know we have a difference of opinion about how much change could really occur, but we definitely want it to be something that was meaningful and that really made a difference. And and, and people always talk about this. Uh, you hear it through the whole spectrum of, of, of Judaism and maybe even in, in, in the Western world in general that I had this great day of uplift, but you know, why was it that the rest of the year uh, things were pretty much, you know, the same. I didn't really find that much of a difference until I had that one day of uplift again. Maybe what, what we're saying here today is that if we could fine tune the confession, the vidui, as it's called in Hebrew, perhaps make it more modernize it in terms of what it means in the nefesh of the person, the soul of the person, the essence of the person, that talking about it and having people say that, whether they recognize it or not, would reach more people. And I think it would, you know, it, it would create a greater relevance. So you you actually think that this might be. It, it, if not harmful, but at least it would be, it's almost like we are uh, stewing in our own juices as opposed to actually uh, cooking something more positive. Uh, forgive me the, the, the strained metaphor on that, but right? I think you would say that. Okay, I, I am not one who would put myself up as someone who is um, capable or understanding enough of rituals to modify them or to uh, formulate rituals. I don't know much about it, but I can tell you that, let's say, from um, the field of positive psychology, people who um, have an idea that they want to change everything that's negative about them, that resolution does not last the first hour into New Year's, impossible. What you think that's functional, even if it's not conceptually airtight, is to focus on several issues. And the idea is, I don't want to become perfect. That's a mantra in any kind of corrective kind of um, um, mental health treatment. My aim is not to be perfect. My aim is to take some imperfections of mine and make them better and improve upon them. But I can tell you just from a realistic point of view, if you undertake to make something perfect, you will not succeed, right? That's almost an oxymoron. You can't make anything perfect, let alone yourself. So, I mean, I've seen some writings from Hasidic masters who basically have this kind of falsy attitude as well. Don't overshoot. Let's be realistic. What can you possibly achieve? And let's go for that. I've definitely see that, seen that in some of the major writers in the Musser movement. Decide on some goals that make sense and let's do, go for them. And I haven't seen that about Yom Kippur. I've seen that in general about people, but I would say it applies just as well to Yom Kippur. If Yom Kippur and the, the, the days of repentance are seen as days where we can set unrealistic goals and make unrealistic promises and um, 
um, espouse unrealistic resolutions, you're not going to get anywhere. And for those of us who have lived more than one year, we know it at the very time when we're saying it, that this is just hooey. It's not going to happen. Well, so I would say yeah. a lot of these, a lot of these things that I read, I can say, wow, this makes sense for a great um, a, a Musser person, a great sage, a great Tamad Chacham, a great Sadik. I see it as an ideal, but I ain't getting there. It's well, not for me. Well, let me, um, you know, we, we talked about uh, finding some relevance, and and maybe, although I think we're both in agreement that. Uh, overemphasis on actions uh, really skewers what really should be the purpose. And sometimes a person can, can satisfy in a satisfactory way say, I'm not going to do that action anymore without really addressing uh, the inherent problem that's festering within them, which might burst out in some other action throughout the year. Uh, we're in agreement on that. But you also mentioned before that the acrostic, the way we, uh, the, the way the uh, confession is done uh, with the alchet is, is vague and turns people off. For the last uh, 10 years, I uh, have been, I don't know about this year with COVID, but I have uh, been davening Yom Neroim, praying Yom Neroim with the Sephardic uh, community. And I have become very familiar with the Sephardic Machser. And one of the elements of the Sephardic Machser that you find in a number of the, uh, the parts of Yom Kippur is the adaption of Chaim Yosef David Azulai's grand vidui, the grand giant um, uh, confession, where he takes, for example, every letter of the Olive Bays and inserts uh, a potpourri of, 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 of possible Averot. It's not just two. But he actually has, for example, you know, I'm showing, I'm screen sharing with Dr. Juni right now, uh, the letter Dalit and Hey, and you can see uh, a potpourri of, of, of various things. Dalit, of course, is a word for speech. Dibur, speaking with your, speaking in the Beit HaKnesses with your tefillin on, right? Speaking in the middle of davening, uh, all different types of speech, Dalit, uh, you know, in your in your business speech, uh, trying to get the uh, upper edge in the bar in the boardroom, as he says, um, uh, speaking negatively, all different. Not just I spoke negatively, but a whole laundry list of of, of how that power of speech uh, could be used incorrectly. And then just in the letter hey, without getting into too much, using the word hey, which has the word of uh, hakpada, of, of of being over sensitive and and demanding about your point of view. Okay. So here we have uh, using the letter K hey, of I, I, uh, in a way that I was more mocked with my friends than I should have. I walked, I went after different places. Halachno is literally to walk, but also it means to feel that you're going, that you deserve to be places that you don't necessarily really belong. So I, I mentioned this to you, Dr. Junius. Uh, and, and what would you think of that? Would you think that the Chidoz Vidui, which is found by the Sephardim, is maybe, although it might, might be a better alternative than just reading this uh, acrostic of Aleph Alchet? What would you say as far as that goes? When you okay, have so it- I've, actually, I've actually had similar experiences because I've been a member of the Sephardi show since I've gotten to Israel, which is a number of years ago. And in fact, I was enamored by Sephardi services for many years, starting in adolescence, as a child when I grew up in New York. So yes, I find the Chidah's elaboration very much relevant. But again, I still treat it like a multiple choice because some of them just do not pertain to me. They really don't. 
So again, if I take it literally, I'll say this is not my book. Somebody else wrote this and somehow I'm stuck playing this role here. <laughs> but yes, I, I find it very relevant. And yes, the potpourri, as you say, is mostly a very nice menu. And my guess would be that Michi does times, maybe it was relevant to everybody. But some of the things here about um, the example, like putting on tefillin before the nates. <laughs> the last time that happened to me was when I took my GREs. And maybe, and I had to wake up and I had to travel on the train several hours. But no, that's not part of my mind my, at all. I can't really do that. I just want to mention one notion uh, with the, that I found very liberating. And this is from a Hasidic master called Rabbi Elamelech of Lijensk. People go to his grave and they get all kinds of magic allegedly accomplished there. But I, he said something that was very inspired, very meaningful to me. And he said, which really runs counter to what we said before about confession. And that is that for some people, having to say aloud the text of the Amida is distracting. And he says, my advice to you is just don't say it, read it, look at it and relate to the concepts. And I think I would magnify that kind of admonition to some of us when we read the al and the Ashamnus, or if we're davening in the Marakmashu like I do, reading all the elaborations, and we would say, hey, you know, no, 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 I'm not going to say any of this. I'm looking at it. Yes, this is relevant. This is relevant. It's almost like going to a fast food place and saying, okay, I want this, I want this. No, I'm not going to order this today. I just can't relate to it. Uh, So in other words, uh, as we we talked about before about changing things, it sounds like what you think is probably the best approach, since we're not going to be changing the machzor, is have the machzor there, realize how beautiful it is and what it reflects and the ideals behind it, but maybe have a nice book of Musser or uh, ethical book. Maybe it's Jonathan Sachs, Covenant Conversation, whatever is that really talks to you and really speaks to where you are without rejecting the Moxer, but saying, look, I'm looking at this as a very beautiful book, but then I have underneath my Stender, underneath my lector, and I also have something else that I can look at, which really talks to me more. Uh, and, and that'll be my personal reflection. So you're, you're, w- would you say that makes more sense for you in terms of uh, what a Yom Kippur service should be? Okay, if you're talking about Juni, yes, that makes a lot of sense to me. And the <laughs> thing that comes to mind is that when I have a manual sometimes to put together something I got from Akia, I never have the urge to read the entire manual aloud. If I know, okay, I'm putting these together, it's done, I'm not going to read it again. Align A with B, take the three screws. I've done that already. I, I'm not going there. Or this means nothing to me because I'm not putting in any shelves. Let me move on. So the idea of saying, oh, have I said all the words already? Do I have to say more? Other than the basic uh, Amida, have I said all that, that I missed something? And in some cases that I missed something that I don't even know what it means? That can't be a concern of mine because then I'm just stuck in some kind of obsessive, compulsive, uh, um, uh, self-satisfying ritual rather than trying to um, come to terms with myself and to connect with God. I, I, I respect definitely what you're saying. I want to end with one little comment uh, and, and think what, get your impressions. Uh, when we talk about a list of what you've done and, 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 and feeling remorse over those actions, um, you mentioned, we mentioned before about how it can be artificial and, and, and perhaps not really directed properly uh, if, it all, if it only happens on Yom Kippur or on Yom Kippur. One of the great, the founders of that Muslim movement you mentioned before is Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. 
And what he pushed for his students, and it was actually practiced, I'm going to say parenthetically, I did it for a number of, uh, for about a year or two. Uh, and so I want to get your, your take on this, which is every day you walk around with a little a notebook. And in that notebook, now you shouldn't, you have a little code, <laughs> the way he says, so no one who finds it knows what you've really done. But you make little marks in your notebook. And th- when you've done an Aver, like when you've done, when you violated God's will in some way, or you did something wrong, or you spoke incorrectly, or you lost your temper, and you make a little mark in your book. And then at night, before you go to sleep, you take this book out when nobody else has seen it, and you go through and say, and then you compare the pages, of course, night by night, that hopefully you have less marks uh, about that. Uh, and um, uh, this was practiced by many of the Balai Musa, which meant that it wasn't just on Yom Kippur, but every day they would, I wouldn't, for many people, they would call that obsession over every single action that they did and where they might have taken a misstep. Now, I can tell you when I did it, um, I was very young. I was 17, uh, 17 through 19. Um, and I, I, I feel bad that I didn't continue. Um, but I, from, what do you think? Do you believe that this is something that is helpful? Does, is, do you think that it's, uh, it's over-obsessive? Do you think uh, it's something that perhaps you would encourage people to do? Okay, so I have to give you a two-sided answer. I know people who are very much living the Musser ideal. These are people that I know who are basically B'nai Torah, who spend their whole day learning, people who actually have a, a certain section of their day and their night before they go to sleep to review the day. I've seen people do it with some family members, actually do it with their spouses in a very commendable way. And I would say it works for people who have blemishes. Okay. I am not part of those because I, well, I have plenty of blemishes, but I have some real uh, wormholes. I mean, big ones. (laughs) So I would say if I did this, I would probably become diagnosable as OCD within a couple of hours. In other words, I could not swing this. So yes, I think it's a nice ideal for people who have already achieved a certain level of refinement of their personality. And I think most of those people are actually isolated from the real world because in the real world, you have many pitfalls that are not fine. If I had to write down everything I've done that's questionable, I need to carry a, well, I'll carry an iPad, of course, but otherwise I have to carry a number of blank (laughs) notebooks with me every day. It won't get me anywhere. So I'm saying ideally, yes, of course, it would be nice to be that kind of person where you deal with fine shades of an equity that you try to correct. I'm sure many of the people I know never have to deal with blatant, honest to goodness sins and transgressions that really hurt a number of people badly. So yes, it works for them. It's ideal. But I would say definitely people who already have difficulties in self-esteem and self-concept that start approaching the diagnosable area, I would say, don't do that. It's going to hurt you. And I can say that as a, uh, as, as a bona fide professional. I will give you a note. Don't do that. It will hurt you, even if it's ideal for somebody who is a great Musser person. Wow. So because, so really, you know, although they thought that this would be the type of thing that would spread, they felt that these little type of incremental looks that you do for yourself every night would actually take away from the sense of fiction that we have 
that, oh, Yom Kippur has changed you. Maybe we can actually, through the year, make those incremental changes you said, but they only work if you're honest with yourself. And I'm, I'm going to push back on you. And I know that many of our listeners wonder, what is the hell is going on? I use the word hell. Who is this guy, Kivalevich? What's going on? Like, you know, because they don't realize that, first of all, we've, again, on the first couple of shows, we talked about our relationship, how, how long ago we, we've been, we've known each other. But of course, I'm not the, I, I'm no famous rabbi. But I have to push back from a rabbinical perspective on that. I think that, um, you know, I, I, I think that I would like, we'd like to all to, to, and you're right. You have a big peckle. You're saying I, I'm I'm so bad. I have such I have such massive averos, as you would say, or such massive personality problems. I wouldn't be able to write that all down. I I think, uh, Doctor Juni, I think that that sort of to me sounds a little bit like an excuse because hey, you got to start somewhere. And you're right. The first couple of days, it's going to be boy, did I lose my temper and I made my wife feel like two cents by, let's say, getting upset. And boy, you know, I, I, I cut in line and, 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 and I lost. But eventually when you, when, when you sit at night and you reflect on that and you think about it and it's in a, it's, it's in a notebook that you wrote, I, I think you could alter that. I, I think it, it, there is a way to, you know, to, to video yourself in your mind and by having a piece of paper, I think... It, I, I see it as healthy and normal, and I think it could, it could actually. I don't think it's only for, as we call it in Hebrew, the bnei aliyah, the people that are uh, on the great Mister level. To me, it sounds like a way to make Yom Kippur more relevant because it isn't just on Yom Kippur that you do your confession. You actually, every single night, uh, you take pause about what you're doing. Let me just bring you a proof to what I'm saying. Uh, many of us, you know, in COVID nineteen, people have talked about COVID fifteen. And COVID thirty, for some people that's the fifteen or thirty pounds they've gained. For many people, okay, I'm gonna me, me included. There's the amount that you lost of weight during COVID. So what I'm saying is, people on diets can do this, right? It's not as it's not as it's not as essential to their character, but people make that list of what their calories are. Why can't that carry over to what we're saying now? Um, because I, you know, everybody can go on a diet. Can't you, how many, whatever calorie intake you took, can't, can't you apply that? Or do you think that's impossible? Let's end with this. Okay. So I have to give you my reaction. And that is, I don't need much to convince me that I use these arguments as a cop out. Okay. <laughs> but that does not mean that I'm wrong. Okay. <laughs> Just because I'm using it in the self-serving way to get me off the hook doesn't mean that I believe professionally, not personally, that I believe professionally that most people can go ahead through this kind of program of self-examination um, and correction across the board and get somewhere. I don't think it can happen for most of us. I know some people that it can happen for because they are way ahead of the game in terms of personality refinement and being decent, moral human beings. But for most of us, it will not work. And yes, it gets me off the hook. And I say that unabashedly. Oh, so why, why, why do you think, again, I, you, didn't, you, you evaded my point, and I know you want to go pray now. Uh, uh, but yeah, Sure. So, so tell me, you want to go David, but I think you're doing, you're teaching the Torah to the Rabbin. Now you're teaching uh, the ideas of the Torah to so many people that are downloading our episodes. So tell me, why is it different than dieting? The person knows you don't want to be a fat slub. You don't want to get diabetes. You don't want to, right? Why can't the person say, you don't want to be, uh, 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 as we, my, my 
parents used to say, a chaleria. You don't want to be a, a, a human cholera walking epidemic. You don't want to be a person who, who's angry and mad and, 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 and hurts people all the time. Why can't the same brow beating when you talk to yourself, you don't want to be a fat slob, be the same thing in terms of being a religious slob? And the same okay. way, go ahead. Let me just use your, your dieting analogy. If you don't want to be somebody who's grossly overeating and eats anything they see without regard to themselves, doesn't mean that you set yourself for a goal that your BMI should be exactly on target every day for the next year. It's going to happen. If someone is very close and he's exercising, I can see them saying, yes, I'm going to make sure that my BMI is within a fifth of a standard deviation away from what it should be. But most of us are not there. Most of us do violate the overall ideals we have. So I would say pick something that's achievable. Okay. Because if you pick something that's unachievable, you're going to get nowhere. So, so let's so sort of a compromise. You agree doing it every day would be fine. But the same way on Yom Kippur, you said, Dr. J, to zero in on a couple of points, if you're going to have a year-long uh, regimen, it should also be on a couple of points, as opposed to a book that has every single negative thing that you did. I think I, 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 I've encapsulated you well. I can shake your hand on that, Rabbi. <laughs> okay. So we want to wish all our listeners, and to really the whole world, uh, a, 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 as we said, a, a, a much better year. And God should grant us all in his uh, magnificence and love uh, atonement for what we've done incorrectly and uh, and how we perhaps have done many, many things to the people around us and to the world in general. Let's hope that uh, as we step out of this uh, corona and beyond, we are really talking about a better world with a lot better people in it. And that betterness, of course, will come from their own understanding and reaction. So I'm Avram Kivilevich. We'll see you, Amir Tzashem, maybe during uh, the holiday period. Uh, Dr. Juni, thanks again. And to all, again, as again, a Siva Vahasima Tova to all. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 